been a busy week. Educating our kids, teaching our kids. We had our academy graduation on Friday. This stage was full of kids jumping up and down and singing those songs and singing about Jesus being in my heart. And they sang a song that said, yes, 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 Lord, yes. So these tiny little kids learning at this stage in their life that Jesus is their Lord and asking that he put his word in their heart. And then Sherry and I have had a delightful time the past few weeks, seven weeks, working with our older kids. So you see, they go from this stage to this stage. And they're up here doing prayers, and they're up here leading our worship. What a fantastic opportunity. And then you see from this uh, contraption that tomorrow we start our VBS, where we have this place fill up again with kids and with, with volunteers, teaching them the Word of God teaching them to love Jesus, teaching them what it means to live a, a spiritual, moral, productive life to the glory of God and to their own good well-being. Now, why do we invest so much time and effort in teaching our kids? I mean, Sherry, we're going to bring a, a bed here for Sherry to take a nap during the day. She has been straight, flat out. If you see Sherry, tell her thank you. I mean, this has been a tough couple of weeks for her, and she has soldiered through it, and Tom, and all the other volunteers working with her. Why do we do this? We teach our kids because God mandated from the beginning that we teach our children to carry on the tradition of His truth to the next generation. It's true in the Old Testament. We, uh, after the Passover, after the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they celebrated the Passover, God commanded Moses to tell the people, this is something you will do every year as long as there is an Israel. And the synagogues around our country and around our world, every year, Jews still celebrate the Passover to teach their children about God. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses gave Israel the great Shema. Hear, O Israel! The Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And these commands that I give you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and to your grandchildren. The Mesopotamians built ziggurats. Egyptians built pyramids. The Greeks built the Pantheon. The Romans built the Colosseum. The Jews built schools. And all these empires who have sunk back into the dust because they failed to teach their children are gone. But the Jewish way of life lives on today. For four millennia, the teachings of God have gone on through these people because they taught their children. They passed it on to the next generation. And yet, in the Old Testament Hebrew language, there is no word that means to teach. There's no word in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew language, for teach. Now go with me here for a moment. The word that's translated teach in our Old Testament scriptures is the causative stem of the word to learn. See, the Hebrews would take a verb, 
And they had a way, that, by turning it into a form called a hyphial form, to turn it into a causative. And so, technically, to teach is to cause to learn. To teach is to cause to learn. You see, when I'm up here doing this, the action really isn't back here. The action is out there. I can do all sorts of crazy things. I can have music and PowerPoints and dancing girls and anything I want back here. But it doesn't matter what's going on back here if nothing is happening out there. And when I used to train teachers, I would say, if they ain't learning, you ain't teaching. Doesn't matter what you're doing. The whole focus of the operation, the whole reason we do all this is to help our kids learn, to help them grow. And by the way, all of our students didn't leave. You are also God's students. Because if I'm going to teach them, and if you're going to teach them, and if we're going to teach our children and our grandchildren, we have to be learning constantly, all the time. Christianity, Judaism, is about growing and learning and becoming constantly. God is a God of change. He's a God of growth. He's a God, a God who, who makes the trees grow, who makes the plants grow, who makes his people grow, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. So throughout the Old Testament, the big emphasis was on teaching, on education, on helping people grow, and Jesus picked that up into the New Testament. The very first thing he said to, one of the very first things he did with his, uh, with his ministry is to recruit some people called disciples. And what he said to these disciples is, follow me, come to me, and I will turn you into. I will make you become. I will help you become something you aren't, something better, something more productive. I will turn you into disciples. And this term disciple, this, this, it, it, it's, a, it's a, a fascinating term. It means a learner. It means a student. So when we have these people up here and we're talking to them about learning and about going to class, it's all about them becoming disciples, not Sherry's disciples, not my disciples, Jesus' disciples. A disciple is a learner. And there's another word that Jesus frequently used when he talked about his disciples. It means a follower. Someone who Jesus said, I want you to follow me, not just walk behind me. I want you to learn from my example. I, I want you to, to do what I do. Say what I say. And that's why we say we don't make disciples of Sherry or me. When I was discipling students, as a professor. Jeanette would remind me frequently, these have to be Jesus' disciples, not yours. One of you is enough. <laughs> so we're not trying to make people like us. We're trying to turn people into Christ-like people. Paul said in Romans that God's goal in your life as a Christian is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That you would be like Him. That you would think His thoughts. That you would feel His passions. That your values would be His values. That your goals would be His goals. And this whole idea of, 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 of being a disciple 
Jesus made it very plain. I want you to become, I will turn you into, I will make you to become a disciple. And then one of the last things he said before he left the earth is go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Einstein said, perfection of means and confusion of ends seems, in my opinion, to characterize our age. We keep getting better and better at doing what we do and forgetting why we do it. And it's essential to succeed in any complex operation. It is absolutely essential that those of us who are involved in that operation understand the goal and, and passionately embrace it. Let me say that again. In any complex organization, it is absolutely essential that the people involved in that operation clearly understand the operation's goal and passionately embrace it. And Jesus understood that, so he said, you know, we've got a lot going on. We've got a lot going on in the church. We divide our stuff into worship, grow, serve, and operations. A lot of stuff going on around here. A lot of stuff going on this week. A lot of stuff going on last week. A lot of pieces to put together. And sometimes we get so involved in the process that we forget why we're doing it. We forget why we're doing it. We have to remember why we're doing it. Our single goal as a church is to turn our kids and our converts into disciples. And Jesus said, you've watched me. You've seen how I do miracles and I teach and I do all this stuff. But I do it all for one reason. To turn you into disciples. The goal, we say two words in English, make disciples. Jesus used one word, mathe tusata, make disciples. The Great Commission, it says, going from here, make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything, observe everything I have commanded you. So there are four actions, four verbs there. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. And often I ask students, what's the, uh, what's the main verb? And they say, go, and I say, no. <laughs> no. Of course you're going to go from here. We're on a mountain in Galilee. You're not going to live here. But as you go from here, as you go from this place back out into your world, into your neighborhood, into your golf course, into your clubs, into your places where you go, back talking to your kids and your grandkids, as you go from here, one imperative, mathe tu sate, make disciples. That's what it's all about. That's why we have balloons, because it helps us make disciples. That's why we sing hymns. Thank you, Tom. It helps make disciples. That's why I'm up here doing this. To help make disciples. And that's why I'm burdened with the fact that it doesn't matter what I do back here. If it ain't happening out there, it's a waste of time. So we have to be very strategic about what we do and how we do it. Not only for our kids, but for those of us who are modeling and teaching our kids. Jesus said, I want you to follow me, my disciples. 
And then I want you to go out and find other people and teach them to follow me. And this word mathe, this word disciple, a student, a follower. I looked up in Gerhard Kittel's Theological Dictionary of New Testament Words, this, this Greek word mathetes. Let me read what Kittel, Gerhard Kittel, says about it. Mathetes, disciple, always implies the existence of a personal attachment which shapes the whole life of the one described as disciple and which in its particularity leaves no doubt as to who is deploying the formative power. Our task is to bring these kids and to bring one another and to encourage one another to come into a life-changing relationship with no one other than Jesus Christ himself. Through the scriptures, through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I want to shape you and mold you and grow you into somebody you never even dared dream that you could be. But I do that, Jesus said, through a, an intensely personal relationship. Kittle goes on, the control of the disciples by the one to whom they have committed themselves extends in the New Testament to the inner life. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Actions are driven by passions. And those passions are born and bred and cultivated and grow deep in the soul of the human. That's what we're trying to do with these kids. That's why they stand and they jump up and down and say, isn't that cute? Yeah, but listen to what they're singing. Listen to what they're singing. And finally, another quote from Kittle. In the New Testament, we do not find any instances where, my, where disciple is used without the implication of a supremely personal union. This hit me back when my boys were little. I first started studying this whole thing of discipleship. And it hit me like a two-by-four across the head that I can't raise my kids from a distance. I mean an emotional distance. I have to love them. And they have to know that. I have to hug them. I've got to be part of their life. And they have to be part of my life. And it just takes time to be together, to talk and listen to each other. Supremely personal union. And then I found that to be true with those students that we entered into this co-discipleship, co-mentoring relationship, helping each other grow, learning from each other, challenging each other, calling each other to account, reading books and reading passages and talking about them and wrestling with them and saying, what are the implications of this for my life? And watching each other grow, what a thrill, what a thrill, what a thrill. My son Chris is 55 years old. We still do this. My adopted student son, Ryan, who preached in this pulpit last fall. We still do this. My adopted son, Nate, back in Denver. We do this. Email, phone calls, holding each other accountable, reading the same stuff, 
talking about the implications. A supremely personal union. Jeanette and I used to do this. I have guys in my life, we do this because I need it and you need it. Somebody who loves us enough to call us out when we need to be called out. Discipleship. That's what it's all about. It's not just jumping up and down and singing songs. It's not just about balloons and cake after the service. It is that. But all of those things have to be focused on the supreme goal of why churches exist. If we're not making disciples, let's sell the joint and go do something else. And there are a whole bunch of churches whose leaders think that when they stand before God, he's going to say, how many sermons did you listen to? How much was in your offering plates? How many trips did you make? He's going to ask one question. Where are, you, where are your disciples? Where are your disciples? Moses will say, oh, I've got Joshua and Caleb. Elijah will say, I've got Elisha. Jesus will say, here's 11. What will I say? What will this church as a body say? We had a lot of fun. Had a lot of potluck suppers. Some churches, you'd think the Great Commission was going to all the world and have potluck suppers. No. Went to the world, make disciples. Well, we said earlier that the whole point of doing all this is learning. If you ain't teaching, I mean, if they ain't learning, you ain't teaching. So we ask ourselves, how do we know? How do we know? What's, what's the evidence? What do we look for? And Mark 4 gives us four, uh, three little parables that help us get our head around what does it look like. And one of these parables, uh, uh, in, let's see, Mark 4, it was here this morning in my Bible. Right there it is. Yes, sirree. And it says, it's the parable, the first parable, the parable of the soils. The sower went out to sow his seed. You're familiar. I preached on it here a while back. Some of you remember. Most of you say, oh, you did? Yeah, we did. Anyway, he said the sower went out, he threw his seeds on the ground, this farmer did. And it landed on four different kinds of soils. Some of the seed landed on, on the pavement. And, and the other seed landed in rocky soil. Another seed fell in the uh, reedy soil. And other seeds fell in the good soil. Now, it's right to say these are four different kind of people, four different hearts. Uh, Luke refers to the, to the people when Jesus interpreted the parable. The disciples said, what, what is this all about? And Jesus said, it's like the, the seed is the word of God. And I am the sower. I'm the one who's throwing the seeds out. And I know that when I throw the seeds out, some of it will fall on people who just don't care. The hard pavement. And, and, and so he talked about four people. It's true that there are four different kinds of people in the parable, but it's also true that there is one person with four different kinds of hearts. And I think that to miss the point that Jesus is saying, as my seed falls on your heart, you may hear a truth and you say, it just bounces off. Oh, yeah, good, I should do that. 
And then you may hear that truth again, and you'd be like the, the, the rocky soil. It says the, rocky, the seed that fell in the rocky soil, it grew up very quickly, but then the first time there was any opposition to it, it died away. The plant died off. And then the third time, the third seed fell in weedy soil. And he said, and that's like a person like me sometimes. The seed falls. It's, it, first time I ignored it. The second time I said, okay, and then I forgot about it. Third time it hung in there a little longer. You know, I prayed or I tithed or whatever it was, a little bit longer. And it says, then Jesus said, in that weedy soil, the weeds grow up with the plant and eventually they choke out the, the plant and it produces no fruit. We get so busy with other stuff and our priorities get screwed up. We say, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to do that. And it goes away. And then the fourth soil, we hear that truth the fourth time. And it sinks into the heart and it produces a plant and that plant produces fruit. And, and so I, I, and it's, it's, it's true that, that, that change occurs, but far more often what happens is growth. As we teach these little kids and as we teach each other, as we get involved in each other's lives with these truths, and we hear them, we say, yeah, okay, that's good. And then we hear them again and we say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. And we do it for a few days and it's gone. And we come back again and it stays a little longer and we get busy and forget. And then finally and eventually, it takes hold. We get it. You've heard of the lights coming on. You, you've heard that thing, you see the kid, the lights come on, like that. Sometimes that happens. But far more often, it's not like an incandescent bulb where it goes like that. It's more like a fluorescent bulb with a bad star. Boop, 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 boop. Oh, yeah. See, I got it, finally. And that's what this parable of the soils is about. These profound truths. These, these deep changes in life where we come from, from this way of life to being a follower of Christ, to being one of Jesus. It takes time. It takes repeated exposure. It takes commitment. So that first parable says, truth can be known. But it requires, oftentimes, an effort and a process. And then he told the parable of the lamps. He said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl or under a bed. When we light a lamp, we put it on a lampstand so that all who come in can see the light. And the second parable is saying, not only the truth, the first parable says the truth can be known, the second one says the truth must be known. You are the light of the world. And when somebody turns you on, <laughs> not only do you change, when he turn his light on, the light bulb changes, but the purpose of the light bulb changing is not for the light bulb to change. The purpose of the light bulb to change is to give light to others. And so as we're growing and the power of God and the changes, that the growth that God is producing in us becomes a broadcasting reality of what the power of God can do in a human life. And so the truths that we read and that we hear and we incorporate into our life are to be shared with others. The truth can be known through the process of planting the seed and letting the seed grow and producing fruit. The truth must be known just like a lamp. The truth must be known. And then this third parable it says a farmer sows seed in the ground and then he goes to bed. Then he gets up the next morning, he does his work, milks his cows, does whatever he's doing. 
and that seed just lays there in the ground. And he almost forgets about it. But all by itself, that seed germinates and grows up and produces fruit. And if you ask the farmer to explain it, he says, I don't have a clue. I don't know how that works. Now, he's not just talking about tomato plants. He's talking about the seed of the Word of God that we plant in our own heart and we plant in these little kids' hearts. How do we know if it works? It will grow. It will produce fruit. Our passion for these kids. Our passion for each other. The reason we go through all of this crazy stuff we do, running a church. <laughs> and it is crazy sometimes, ain't it? Yeah. Why do we do it? Because people desperately need the power of God at work in their life to help them be the spouses, the friends, the moms and dads, the grandmas and grandpas that our world needs. Jesus said, I will make you to become a disciple. And then I want you to unleash my power in other people's lives so they become disciples. That's what this place is all about.